Would you all please turn in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 15? Jeremiah chapter 15, and we'll be reading verses 15 through 21. <clears throat> and that says this, Jeremiah 15, 15 through 21. O Lord, you know, remember me and visit me and take vengeance for me on my persecutors. In your forbearance, take me not away. Know that for your sake, I bear reproach. Your words were found and I ate them. And your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. For I am called by your name, O Lord, God of hosts. I did not sit in the company of revelers, nor did I rejoice. I sat alone because your hand was upon me, for you had filled me with indignation. Why is my pain unceasing, my wound incurable, refusing to be healed? Will you be to me like a deceitful brook, like waters that fail? Therefore, thus says the Lord, if you return, I will restore you and you shall stand before me. If you utter what is precious and not what is worthless, you shall be as my mouth. They shall turn to you, but you shall not turn to them. And I will make you to this people a fortified wall of bronze. They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail over you. For I am with you to save you and deliver you, declares the Lord. I will deliver you out of the hand of the wicked and redeem you from the grasp of the ruthless. Let's pray. Our Father... Make your name holy in this time and place now. Holy Spirit, give us ears to hear and hearts to believe. Oh, Jesus, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. <clears throat> okay, do you guys know what a catch-22 is? A catch-22 is where there's two criteria that must be met, but the uh, there's a goal in mind where two criteria must be met to achieve it, but the two criteria cancel each other out, and which makes the meeting the goal impossible. Like in the book that coined the term, for instance, Catch-22 applied to World War II soldiers, and it meant the only way out of combat duty was to be declared insane. But anybody who wants out of combat duty can't really be crazy because that's a rational thing to want. So the book says, if you're crazy, you can get out of missions. All you have to do is ask. But the moment you ask, you're showing you're not crazy. So you can't get out of missions. And I bring this up because the other night, Audrey and I were discussing the concept of coolness. And I was telling her my theories about it. And, and I started to get a little too philosophical for our casual conversation. I could tell I was losing her. So I'm, now I'm going to subject all of you to this. <laughs> because as we talked, I realized that there's a catch-22 involved in being cool. As far as I see it, there's two things associated with being cool that are mutually exclusive. The first is what I'll call the trappings, right? The, the behaviors, the possessions that are, we associate with coolness. A person has to check certain boxes, you know, knowing the lingo, looking a certain way and all that. It's a broad category, I know. But it has to be because these things change from group to group and time to time and place to place even. And so, we, but we all have them. We all have some trappings which if applied to a person would make them cool in our eyes. So the first criteria is the trappings of cool. The second criteria is more universal. And this second mark of being cool is not trying too hard to be cool. <laughs> and here's the, the great catch 22 of being cool because without trying to be cool, one would most likely not 
attain to the trappings we associate with cool people. You probably wouldn't even know what trappings are cool without trying to know, right? And the moment you try too hard to be cool, you disqualify yourself. Your desperation makes you lame. One of the most common trappings of coolness, for instance, is recognition. More likes and shares on Instagram, for example. But one cannot gain such recognition without fishing for it, without posing those posts there in the first place, without longing for it like a truly uncool person. Social media has revealed just how uncool almost all people are. But though we agree with this second criteria, criteria number two of not trying too hard, that you, you can't try too hard, we're so desperate to be cool that we dismiss it most of the time. We ignore that second criteria. We fool ourselves into thinking that our celebrity icons are famous without trying to be famous. We fool ourselves into thinking that this about them because if we thought of them like they really are, anxiously pining away for the attention of strangers, we might not be so enamored with them. But when we're in our right minds, our most lucid and rational, we can understand the catch. If someone doesn't live up to the trappings, they can't be cool. They don't dress cool, talk cool. When someone does have the trappings, they only have them through trying to be cool, which is itself terribly uncool. Here is our catch 22. It's a trap. It's a clever trap. So clever, I don't think it's an accident. It's designed by an evil one. It's a subtle twist. Notice the, the two parts of the catch-22, the, the trappings and then the not trying, or we could call it maybe authenticity. One of these things is malleable, right? And the other thing is fixed. The trappings change from time to time, and even subculture to subculture. There's people who think dungeons and dragons are cool. Some people think hunting is cool. The trappings change, but the other side can't change. It's fixed and firm. So if we're going to resolve this once and for all, we've got to fix this other part. And I mean fix in both senses of the word. Fix is in repair what's wrong with it and fix is in make it stable and still so it's not always changing. So how do we go about this? Well, we've got to understand what coolness is a distortion of. It's a sadistic twist on admiration. We are meant to admire people who are admirable. God has placed this within us. But admiration, it's not worship. We often accidentally confuse the two without even realizing that's what we're doing. Worship is meant for perfection and will not be satisfied with anything less. And when we accidentally let admiration slip into worship, we fall into one of two problems, or sometimes both. We either exalt people and ignore or deny their faults so we can pretend they're perfect, and that usually results in disastrous effects, or we punish each other and shun each other for not being what none of us can really be. We must have the distinction clear. Worship is for the perfect creator. Admiration is for creatures in which perfection, his perfection, is imperfectly yet still beautifully reflected. And admiration does have its place. We, we too, I think its place is that we would be inspired to live admirably. But here's the twist, and this is the most important thing I wanted to point out about this, is that God wants us to desire to live admirably. The devil wants us to desire to be admired. And that's the catch. That's the main difference. The devil wants us to desire to be admired. God wants us 
to desire to live admirably. It's a subtle twist that catches us in an unresolvable dilemma because seeking to be admired is not admirable. Coolness is a cheap substitute for the Christian idea of glory. And glory is promised to Christians. And when applied to humans, the idea of glory is the approval not of fellow men, but of God. C.S. Lewis once wrote about this, this view of glory in an essay called The Weight of Glory. And I want you to go home and read the whole thing today. Seriously, it's amazing. But I'm going to read you a big chunk of it right now because it's so good. As he reflected on glory as divine approval, he says this, I suddenly remembered that no one can enter heaven except as a child. And nothing is so obvious in a child as its great and undisguised pleasure in being praised. What I had mistaken for humility had prevented me from understanding what is the humblest and the most childlike, the most creaturely of all pleasures. Nay, the, the specific pleasure of the inferior, the pleasure of a beast before men, of a child before its father, of a pupil before his teacher, of a creature before his creator. I'm not forgetting how horribly this most innocent desire is parodied in our human ambitions or how very quickly it turns into the deadly poison of self-admiration. But I thought I could detect a moment, a very, very short moment, before this happened, during which the satisfaction of having pleased those whom I rightly loved and rightly feared was pure. And that moment is enough to raise our thoughts to what may happen when the redeemed soul beyond all hope and nearly beyond belief learns at last she has pleased him whom she was created to please. There will be no room for vanity then. She will be free from the miserable illusion that it was her doing. With no taint of what we should now call self-approval, she will most innocently rejoice in the thing God has made her to be. And the moment which heals her old inferiority complex forever will also drown her pride. And Lewis in that, in that paragraph points out how the most innocent and pure pleasure of being praised as a human is that of the inferior. But our twisted pursuit of coolness is being praised for being superior. But the problem, of course, is that you can't be superior to God. And he is the one that we are to most please. His approval is the one we are to most seek. And he gives us a vision and a way out of the catch-22. Those two criteria, remember, the ever-changing trappings over here and authenticity over here, he sanctifies this fixed side and he fixes this shifting side. He gives us, he graciously gives us the trappings associated with an admirable life in his eyes. He too values authenticity. That, that comes from him. Not trying to please men for the sake of vanity or ego by portraying yourself a certain way. That intuition comes from God. And the best verse about that, I think, is Ephesians 6, 6, where he says to live not in a way of eye service as men pleasers, but as servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. So don't have a facade of eye service. Don't just be a man pleaser, Paul says there. He wants us to be genuine and wholehearted. And Jeremiah's life touches on all of this because he lived admirably, but for the most part, he was not admired in his day. He was real and he was genuine and authentic. And his life gives us some fixed criteria for an admirable life. I want us to be inspired 
by his admirable wife this morning to learn from Jeremiah. He did not try to be cool, which is actually one of the things that set him apart in his day from the other so-called prophets. They were trying to be admired by men and not Jeremiah though. He was actually admirable. He was not approved by man, but he was approved by God. He was not perfect like his maker is, but he was admirable. And in that, Jeremiah, he offered, he never offered eye service as a man pleaser, but he offered heart service as a God pleaser. This is how Jeremiah lived. And I pray that we all may be the same. And it's worth mentioning that in in Matthew 16, when people were trying to understand Jesus and guessing at who his identity is, one of the three people they, they mentioned that they thought he might be is Jeremiah. Jeremiah is that kind of striking and exemplary figure. And we know more about his life than any of the other prophets because his life is nearly as significant as his teaching. It shows us a life lived fully aligned with his faith and his calling, even in trying times. It reveals to us the possibility of such a thing, of of robust and authentic devotion, of living wide awake to the reality of God among us, even when we live among the sleeping. So I want us to learn from Jeremiah's life. And there's three aspects that we see in this text that, we, that I read at the top uh, that are markers of Jeremiah's life. His calling, his sincerity, and his resilience. There's a lot more we could talk about, but we'll just take these. His calling, his sincerity, and his resilience. And we could see these even more clearly when we compare and contrast Jeremiah with the various kings that he, uh, of Judah that he served during the lifetime, that served during his lifetime. There were technically five kings throughout Jeremiah's lifetime, uh, but two of them only served for a couple of months before taken away to other countries. So, uh, So there's three kings that Jeremiah interacted with most. King Josiah, Jehoiakim, and Zedekiah, in that order. So Josiah was his friend, Jehoiakim was his enemy, and Zedekiah was something else. He was ambivalent toward him. He was one moment his buddy and the next moment letting him get thrown into a pit. Uh, So these three men, they're helpful in revealing the character of Jeremiah. So we'll talk about them a little bit as we go along and examine Jeremiah's calling, his sincerity, and his resilience. So let's start with his calling. Look at the second half of verse 16. He says, for I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. And in this prayer to God, he's recalling this how this wild ride of his life started back in the beginning of Jeremiah. He, so turn back to Jeremiah 1, because this is such an important text. Starting in verse 4 of Jeremiah 1, it says this. This is when God calls Jeremiah. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Then I said... Ah, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a youth. But the Lord said to me, do not say I am only a youth, for to all to whom I send you, you shall go, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. The first thing God says to Jeremiah sets the tone for his whole life. It puts the proper perspective on Jeremiah to understand himself and understand the world. He says, God says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, 
I consecrated you. This is the most important starting point in understanding Jeremiah. Especially in light of learning from his life or of any great life. The most important thing about Jeremiah is not Jeremiah. The most important and foundational reality about Jeremiah's life is God. Before Jeremiah knew anything, God knew Jeremiah. Before Jeremiah had a life, he had a calling. Jeremiah's life did not start with Jeremiah. Jeremiah's salvation didn't start with Jeremiah. Jeremiah's ministry didn't start with Jeremiah. This is why Jeremiah lived so right and so many others lived so wrong. Because he understood the truth and was shaped by it. When we start with ourselves, we start out on the wrong foot. When, we, when our own identity and personality and our own self is the north on the map we are making of our lives, then all of our compasses will be off and we will be lost. True north is God and reality is his map. The world is his. All life is his. Your life is his. And if we take a minute and we slow down and breathe and think this becomes very clear, abundantly clear. In the screw tape letters, a demon mocks us humans for our belief that our bodies are our own, calling our bodies those vast perilous estates pulsating with the energy that made the worlds in which they find themselves without their consent and from which they are ejected at the pleasure of another. It's so clear. Our bodies pulsate with the energy that made the worlds, but we find ourselves in them without our consent, don't we? In other words, we didn't ask to be born. That decision was made by another. And we're also ejected from them at the pleasure of another. They are clearly not ours. Screwtape ends that letter like this. They will find out in the end, never fear, who, to whom their time, their souls, and their bodies really belong. Certainly not to them. My prayer is that we find out before the end. And it's more than just our bodies. It's the whole world. This world that we live in was made by another. There's already a whole mess and web of other stories and cultures in full swing when we arrive. And if we are going to live in a way that is not embarrassingly pompous, and utterly foolish, then we have to understand this simple truth about our lives that we are plopped into the middle of a story that was started by another and will be ended by another, someone other than ourselves, and that person is God. You can only understand yourself when you understand what he thinks of you. You must live in response to him. Jeremiah got there through this miraculous calling, but his friend King Josiah... He got there from a kind of common sense. He was appointed king at age eight, spared providentially any further influence from his evil father. He did not ask to be king. This calling was given to him. And he acknowledged what all the evil kings before him refused to acknowledge, that the kingdom was not his. It was God's. And that shaped everything King Josiah did. He had been appointed for this role. And such a calling required a certain kind of life. He was consecrated, as God says to Jeremiah, which means called out, set apart for a purpose. Jeremiah, like Josiah, 
was also a very young man when God called him. Apparently, this was a period of time where God was pleased to work through the young. But that didn't seem right to Jeremiah. Right? What does he say? When he, how does he respond to the call? He says, I don't know how to speak, for I am only a youth. He doesn't feel qualified for what God has called him to do. He doesn't think he's ready. But God responds like this, Do not say I am only a youth. For to all to whom I send you, you shall go, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you. God is probably not calling you to the exact same ministry as Jeremiah, but he does say similar things to you. He does. As a Christian, you are what scripture calls a saint, which is a a title meaning a consecrated one, just like Jeremiah. You are set apart for God's purposes. He can and will use you. Your perception about yourself and your inadequacies are not the end all be all. Don't count yourself out from doing great things for God, from being his ambassador. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you, God says to Jeremiah. And just like he encourages Jeremiah, he says that to you. He does. He says, I am with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Jeremiah's calling. He reminds me of Frodo in The Lord of the Rings. If you've read it, you remember he, he cries out to Gandalf, I'm not made for perilous quests. I wish I had never seen the ring. Why did it come to me? Why was I chosen? And Gandalf responds, such questions cannot be answered. You may be sure that it was not for any merit that others do not possess, not for power or wisdom at any rate, but you have been chosen and you must therefore use such strength and heart and wits as you have. Gandalf acknowledges the mystery. He assures him that he is indeed chosen, but it's not because he's so great. But because he is chosen, he can trust that he has and or will be given what is required for the task. His life is about something bigger than his own life, someone bigger. And this is true for you, just like it was for Jeremiah. Jeremiah's calling is foundational for his whole life. It rooted him by streams of water, as he would later give us an analogy. So let's move on to some of the branches and leaves and fruit of this tree of Jeremiah that is rooted by these streams of water. The next thing I want us to see about him is his sincerity. Back in uh, our Jeremiah 15 text that we started out with, if you turn back there, he prays to God in verse 16, Your words were found and I ate them. Your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. And then a couple of verses later, he opens up to God saying, Why is my pain unceasing? My wound incurable, refusing to be healed. And when I say sincerity, when I talk about Jeremiah's sincerity, I'm talking about what we talked about earlier, this being free from pretense, no facade or deceit or hypocrisy. He is real and wholehearted in his devotion. And that's revealed in his joy and in his sorrow and in his expression of them. This passage is one of seven passages throughout Jeremiah, which are intimate prayers of this prophet to his God. And some have called him the weeping prophet, but I think it's more appropriate to call him the praying prophet because he prays more than he weeps. And here's a more important thing. He never weeps without praying. He loved God and he lived with God. Prayer was his his way and the way prescribed to all of us of approaching God as a person, not just a thing, 
When he's not just an it or even a he, but a you, you God. When we give him the kind of attention that he always gives to us. In this, it's this kind of private, personal life with God that made Jeremiah who he was, the man that he became. And this is the case with all of us. What we do in private, in secret, it shapes who we really become. And inevitably, it overflows into who we are in public, whether we know it or not. Prayer is the most essential secret life for developing a sincere and authentic and whole person. Jeremiah was honest and personal with his God. And to have a successful personal relationship in any sphere, we must be our true selves. Take off the pious and proper masks. No pretense, no facade. Jeremiah is real and he's rugged. He tells God how lonely he feels in this prayer. He tells him his agonizing sadness and and his anger. He tells him he's confused by how his life is going. He doesn't have time for religious games. His life is heavy, but he knows one who is far weightier still. And Jeremiah is stabilized and strengthened and reoriented through these times with God. He takes God seriously and he gives him even more weight in his life than his struggles. And we see how he values God and he values his word. He says he ate his word and he's, it's his food. He says that it's his joy and the delight of his heart. And this is where we see such a dramatic contrast between him and King Jehoiakim. At one point in Jeremiah 36, you don't have to turn there, but God has Jeremiah and his disciple Baruch write and read a scroll of prophecy. And the scroll is delivered and advances up to King Jehoiakim and it's read to him by one of his staff named Jehudai. And there's a fire in the room because it's winter time. And uh, so it says, the text says this, as Jehudai read three or four columns, the king would cut them off with a knife and throw them into the fire until the entire scroll was consumed. Yet neither the king nor any of his servants who heard these words were afraid, nor did they tear their garments. Even when some urged the king not to burn the scroll, he would not listen to them. Notice how it says that he did not tear his garments. That's a, a call back to what his his father did. That's exactly what his father Josiah did do. When, he, when the Deuteronomy scroll was discovered and he read it, he tore his clothes in repentance and in grief. But his evil son Jehoiakim does not tear his clothes. He instead slices the scroll and burns it, which is going a bit far in the opposite direction, isn't it? I mean, he could have just ignored it. But there's that famous line from Hamlet where Queen Gertrude criticizes someone who's overacting by saying, lady doth protest too much. And essentially, she's saying whenever someone protests too much, you are betraying some secret guilt. It calls into question your sincerity. And that's what's happening here. King doth protest too much. Jehoiakim's response to Jeremiah's scroll betrays his awareness of its significance. This kind of excessive disrespect shows that he's not ignorant of what God demands. His selfishness and anxiety, he's, he's anxious about what God's word would require of his life. And he knows that to give any hint of acknowledging what he knows to be true, it would mean that he would be held accountable for being obedient to it. 
So he desperately tries to avoid that and he goes too far in the other direction, giving an exaggerated show of his disregard for what this prophet has to say. And this disregard, this, this dismissal, it, it's destructive. I once listened to a podcast about a, a psychologist who was famously able to predict with uh, uh, what they said was 94% accuracy of whether couples would divorce just by observing a brief little snippet of conversation between the two of them. They did these little videos. It was a whole like study he did. And 94% accuracy. What he looked for, the warning signs he watched for were indications of what he called contempt, such as sarcasm and sneering and hostile humor, rolling eyes. Not just disagreement, but dismissal. Dismissal often uses humor like, it, like what he looked for. People laugh about being a sinner or even about particular vices in their life, laughing off any need to change, tricking themselves into believing it's of little consequence. I myself have been the kind of person who, when a sermon gets a little too real, makes a little joke to the person sitting next to me. Sorry, Pastor Tim. <laughs> but it's not always joking. Sometimes it's, it's doth protesting too much. We try to convince people that things are true of us, desperately, that we would like to be true, but aren't really we aren't really willing to actually live those things out. Or we may do our own less dramatic version of cutting up and burning the word by simply disregarding the parts we don't like, but keeping the parts we do in order to maintain control of our own little kingdoms. Jehoiakim is one example of this insincerity. He's a dramatic contrast to his father Josiah and his enemy Jeremiah, who received God's word with joy even welcoming his rebukes. That, that's the main test. Look again at, at the text where Jeremiah pours out his heart to God. Jeremiah 15, 18, he says to God, will you be, like, will you be to me like a deceitful brook, like waters that fail? That's an intense thing to say to God. He's saying to God, it seems like you're failing me. But God doesn't strike him in anger. He knows his pain and he loves him but he doesn't indulge him in his faulty perspective. He responds to Jeremiah right after that. In verse 19, if you return, I will restore you and you shall stand before me. If you utter what is precious and not what is worthless, you shall be as my mouth. He comes to his weeping, praying prophet and he puts his arm around him and he says, I know and I understand your fear and your pain and your confusion your loneliness, your anger. But it's not good for you to sit in that. I will show you a better way. I will lead you out of this if you let me. And if you do turn, you will stand with me and I will make you great. If you stop uttering worthless things, you can start uttering precious things and you will be my mouth. This kind of opening up and being renewed before God is what made Jeremiah great. God shaped his life. God lifted his eyes and gave him perspective. God trained him in wisdom and strengthened him for obedience. And this took place as he listened to God and spoke to God. He responded to God personally and sincerely. In one famous part of another one of his prayers, uh, in another passage, God, he tells God of how he wanted to give up 
on his calling to be a prophet. But then he describes his calling like this. There is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones and I'm weary of holding it in. Indeed, I cannot. God's calling in his life, it set his heart and his bones on fire with a blaze that he couldn't keep hidden. And I pray that we become such people of a burning heart, burning bones. But God's response to Jeremiah goes on to reaffirm a promise that he gave him when he called him. In verse 20, he says, I will make you to this people a fortified wall of bronze. They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail over you, for I am with you. And this leads to the last thing I want to mention about Jeremiah, which is his resilience. That text we just read is a condensed reminder of what God told Jeremiah when he called him. Back again in chapter 1, let me, let me read it to you. I love this passage. He says, But you, dress yourself for work. Arise and say to them everything I command you. Do not be dismayed by them, lest I be dismay you before them. And I, behold, I make you this day a fortified city and an iron pillar and bronze walls against this whole land. I love that. Dress yourself for work, Jeremiah. I will make you an iron pillar so hardcore. He's saying, what I'm calling you to will be hard. It will take resilience, but I will make you strong. I will make you tough. You will need to be. People will fight against you, but I am on your side. You will suffer, but I will bring you through. Now, before I say any more about this, I want to bring up our last king, King Zedekiah, because he is so helpful in understanding a contrast between what God is saying to Jeremiah. Because Jeremiah, God is making him an iron pillar. But by contrast, Zedekiah, uh, I'll call him a pipe cleaner. He's malleable. He's weak. He's fickle. He was not outright wicked like his predecessor Jehoiakim. Sometimes he was quite friendly to Jeremiah. Often regularly, actually. He kept coming back to him when he would have concerns of conscience. He would seem to be his friend in order to get some insider prophetic scoop from him. And then the next moment, he's letting his nobles throw Jeremiah into a muddy cistern to die. Zedekiah just sought what was expedient, usually giving in to the loudest voice in the room or whoever put the most pressure on him. Remember, he, I, I said uh, that he let Jeremiah be thrown into that pit. He didn't do it himself. He never seems to have planned or purposed anything really truly bad. But he also didn't intentionally pursue goodness and truth. And being a good king or being a good person will not just accidentally happen. It takes being shaped and molded and fortified by God like Jeremiah was. In order to withstand the forces of evil that will seek to sway us in this world. Jeremiah couldn't count on Zedekiah for anything. He couldn't count on him to be good. He couldn't even count on him to be bad. When someone asked him later, after he let them throw him into the pit, someone else came and asked if they could save him. And he's like, sure. And when, when Jeremiah is safe again, he calls him to him to get some scoop from him. And this leads to my favorite in, interaction between him and Jeremiah in, in uh, Jeremiah 38, 15 through 16, because you can almost hear Jeremiah sigh as he says to him, if I give you counsel, you will not listen to me. 
And then Zedekiah swears to the Lord. He won't turn him back over to the people who want to harm him. Notice, he doesn't swear he'll listen to him. But he's, he's got to keep their little rendezvous secret, he says. He respects Jeremiah as a man of God. His integrity, his courage, they're evident. They're remarkable. So of course he respects them, but he doesn't want to actually be seen with him or let the popular influential people know that they're together or they're friends. And he definitely doesn't want to stick his neck out for him or obey his prophecies. But you don't become a great person or even a good person by just respecting great people. Consulting that outcast prophet, it did reveal something within Zedekiah, some latent desire, maybe even some intention to honor God. But minor intentions, minor desires and good intentions are not enough to make us stable. These seeds must bloom into robust commitment, flowering in firm faith. Repentance and obedience provide substance and stability to our souls. And this is the kind of character that God formed in Jeremiah. Zedekiah is a pipe cleaner and Jeremiah is a pillar of iron, a fortified city with walls of bronze, he says. Jeremiah is a picture of reverent resilience. Thomas Akempis wrote, Jesus today has many who love his heavenly kingdom, but few who carry his cross. Many who yearn for comfort, but few who learn, yearn long for distress. Plenty of people he finds to share his banquet, few to share his fast. Everyone desires to take part in his rejoicing, but few are willing to suffer anything for his sake. There are many that follow Jesus as far as the breaking of bread, few as far as the drinking the cup of suffering. Many that revere his miracles, few that follow him in the indignity of his cross. Jeremiah was among those few. I pray that his example would inspire us to be among those few as well. That he would make us resilient in our calling to follow after Jesus. Thomas Akimbus was right to point us to the cross as the marker of the Christian life. Because Jeremiah, he lived before his Savior's sacrifice in history, but he knew how to take up his cross. We put a lot of emphasis on Jesus bearing the cross instead of us. Taking our penalty, the penalty of our sin upon himself, which is amazing and true. But he also bore his cross that we would follow him in that kind of life of love. That we would bear a cross too. The kind of life and love that is costly and hard and glorious. And I believe that if you really and sincerely plant the roots of your tree by the river flowing from his sacrifice, you cannot help but be changed by it. You will become like Jeremiah who describes uh, in one passage the person whose trust is in the Lord is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and so it doesn't fear when heat comes for its leaves remain green. And it's not anxious in the year of drought for it does not cease to bear fruit. Trust in the Lord Jesus and plant your life by the streams of grace flowing from his cross and let his sacrifice change you and strengthen you even in the days of drought. Let's pray. Holy Father, thank you. Thank you for the life of Jeremiah, how it calls us to greater sincerity and resilience
through being rooted in your knowing us and your wanting us and using us and loving us. Thank you for, for the life of, not just of Jeremiah, but the life of your son, your own son, who, whose life is not just an example to us, but is shared with us, working in us and through us. Father, open us up to that life and open us up to that love in greater ways this today and this week with sincerity and resilience as your servants and as your children. We pray with Jesus. Amen.